The Linux out loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and we have fun doing it. This week, you're spotting off about when is it time to just say goodbye to old hardware. So let's get into episode 55. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by Linode and Bitwarden. With me today, like a brisk sunny morning on a mid-March day, Wendy and Matt, much like stepping in a sloppy cold muddy puddle, how are you two? Doing fantastic. <laughs> Apparently you're wet and cold, Matt. I was going to go with the cold part and leave it at that. Well, actually, originally I was thinking about like, I don't know if you, Wendy, if you have cold days in the desert. Uh, yes, we do. Because it's not like the hot desert here. It is a high mountain desert, so it gets cold. Gotcha. And a cold winter day. I mean, I don't know if it gets snow, but like when it's like blowing and snowing, you get some clothes out of the dryer and like how warm and fluffy the, and welcoming that clean, fresh laundry is. I'm the yes. exact opposite of that. Yeah. <laughs> Matt's like, you put that clean, fresh pair of socks on in your shoes and you don't realize that what you're about to step in is actually some sloppy, only slightly frozen on the top mud. And you get like this cold rush yeah. of water up and in over your shoes inside. That's like Matt. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> like you start out your day so happy and fresh. Like Wendy, as your day gets going, you get all mad upon. Get mad upon? That's interesting. Yeah. It's a new interesting term. That we might have to use more often. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. There's a video game <laughs> reference there that I could use, but I'm just going to leave that one alone. I'm not going to give you guys more ammunition. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know we love you. You are growing on me, Matt. Like fungus, but nonetheless, you're still growing on me. <laughs> I got you, Nate. I got you. So speaking of growing on you like fungus, Matt, you got nothing for us this week? I mean, you just sent me like a bunch of links and you got nothing? As far as for what I've personally done, no, I have got absolutely nothing going on this week that is uh, not of any interest. It's work and family stuff, work and family stuff. That's pretty much it. So unfortunately, I'm going to be the short one on the episode this time and not have a whole lot on this category <laughs> like we normally would. I mean, I can t start talking the Steam Deck, but I'm pretty sure Wendy doesn't want to, you know, asleep for most of the episode so <laughs> <laughs> so while i had absolutely nothing on my end wendy it seems like did you make a new sinister wendy t-shirt it isn't a sinister wendy t-shirt but yes i did some crafting when i should have been editing if you follow me on macedon you've already seen it and what it says is warning may spontaneously talk about robotics and linux i figured it's absolutely perfect i actually made another sticker final sticker that i put on a mug so i've got a water cup that also says the same thing i made the text just a little bit too big so it's a touch hard to read when i'm actually wearing it i'm wearing the shirt right now that means i'm gonna have to make another version of it of course so <laughs> that it fits better it's centered a little bit better there are templates where i could have pulled it up and placed it on a template shirt made sure it was the right size and i'll have to do that next time i go about this but Overall, I'm really, really happy with the way that it turned out. It's on this kind of dark gray shirt with a warning in red and then the rest of the text in white. So that is another use for, as Nate would say, my Crick Cut. It's making geeky t-shirts like this so I can show off how much I love robotics 
and talking about Linux at the same time. I almost put 3D printing underneath that as well. I couldn't <laughs> get it to look quite the way I wanted it to. The alignment here I think looks pretty good, but the whole additional 3D printing on top of that, I'll play with it a little bit more. Maybe the next rendition will have that because it is another thing that I do spend a lot of time talking about, even though mine is still down and I haven't had any time to work on it. It is one of the things that you could randomly catch me spouting about out of nowhere. Well, I thought it was a brilliant shirt. I laughed when I saw it and mm -hmm. I had to like retoot it or something like that or boost it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it's called. Yep, you did. There's actually several people that boosted that one. I think there's a lot of the nerds out there that got a kick out of it. Fitting for many of us. So can we expect to uh, have Michael come up with a shirt? I'm just saying. I don't know. Maybe it could be kind of fun to have something like that in the Tux Digital merch store. There is a Sinister Wendy shirt and it would be kind of fun to make a Rainbow Vomit shirt because that's not something that's in the Tux Digital merch store yet and I would love for there to be one. Though I have no idea how to go about designing something like that and have it look good. Graphic design is not my forte like I can do a little bit here and there but it takes me a really long time to get it to the point that I'm like okay I like that looks good that's something that I would be willing to let other people see whereas Michael's a wizard at that kind of stuff and I'm sure if he had time which he's been extremely busy too that he could have something whipped out pretty quick but coming up with the base foundation of what to even start with I have no clue how do you start with a rainbow vomit t-shirt is it a computer case and then you literally have rainbows spewing out of it I don't know I mean it's Michael so we can just let him have some free reign mm -hmm. though that could also be bad because you know never mind I'm gonna leave that one off who knows where <laughs> he'll end up with that one yeah exactly I was kind of thinking maybe there should be like a line of almost unhealthy shirts Ooh. Wendy has an almost unhealthy obsession with robotics, 3D printing, and Linux. You know, that might be yeah. kind of fun. Or at least robotics. That might be kind of fun. No, I'd go with 3D printing. Definitely. That. You got to <laughs> add that as well. This is true. Well, I definitely will once I get the dang thing working again. I need to order a new fan for it. That's probably ground zero there. And until I can actually sit down at my computer, order parts, and then go work on it, eh, it's going to be a while. It probably won't be until after worlds that i fix my 3d printer yeah i'm kind of in the 3d printing fixing mode as well right now mine's in pieces we got that in common <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the way that goes is you get it running and then it's down and it's time to fix it again and it's not the only thing you're working on because you've dealt with restoring the steam deck having an unresponsive touchscreen, and thankfully all of that information is on cubiclenate.com too. Indeed it is. So I had this issue when my kids brought the Steam Deck to me and says, the touchscreen's not working. I said, what do you mean the touchscreen's not working? It doesn't do anything. Like, all right, I hit the power button, you know, to, to put it to sleep, bring it back up, still not working. I thought, well, let me reboot it. Still not working. I thought, well, sometimes if you cold start it, then it's going to work. So I did that. Still not working. A little bit worried now. I did some internet searching and I found that there's a way to get it to 
reinitialize the screen. Now, I should have done a little more investigation like on the software end of it before doing this, but should it happen again, I will. The fix for it is, and you can search for it, you can find it out there on, on different forums, but you know, rather than search for things in the future, if I have a problem, I can just go to my website, which is, again, why I started it to begin with, was to put all my notes there in the public-facing front. You power it down, you just do the shutdown, the Steam Deck. Instead of turning it on normally, you hold the volume up and the power button. And astray from the uh, instructions that we're being told online, you don't hold them both. You just hold the power up, but you release the power button. Otherwise, it doesn't actually turn on. It'll take you to like a BIOS-like screen. And so you arrow down into a, the setup utility and go over to the battery storage mode option. And that will take it and basically completely power everything down to the point like if it's not plugged in, you cannot power it back on. And then also was not in the instructions too, but then to turn it back on, you got to plug the Steam Deck into external power and then press the power button and it'll turn on. That's like your actual real cold start, like a really cold start, like ice cold, Arctic start. And then that will solve the issue. And I haven't had any issues with the screen since, but it's only been a few days. Something on there, but I, I read something about the cable that connects it might be too short. It might be a little bit tight, but I don't think that's the case. That it would be more flaky, I think, if that were the case. So I think it's just a, a matter of something is not initializing. There's, there's probably an error and not a proper error trapping. And there's probably a way to just power cycle just the screen part of it, like the touch interface. I had a similar issue with a previous laptop where I had to power cycle the Wi-Fi adapter and I did it in terminal on command line where I could basically using like the mod probe command go through and deactivate it and then reactivate it, like basically reset it. I'm sorry, it wasn't a mod probe command. It was an echo command. I basically PCI device off and then reset it. That actually worked. I mean, I'd like to see if that would work with this in the future. And then if there is a problem in the future, then I can do a follow-up based on that sort of tactic. But I didn't, I didn't think about it at the time, which I, I should have. So, Nate, having mm -hmm. had that particular issue before, yes, the power, was it the battery power? I, I can't remember the exact thing you have to go to in the, uh, I guess, the BIOS for the Steam yep. Deck. Mm -hmm. Was it like battery optimization or battery save state or whatever it is? And battery storage mode. Yeah, there we go. Was your kid using it portable? Like, was the Steam Deck being portable to use? Yeah, and it had, like, half the charge on the battery. It wasn't like it was low or anything like that. Yeah, because I know for me, what happened was I was playing mine portably, and for some reason, it was, like, I think it said 10 15%. It wasn't, like, super low. I was like, oh, I'll go plug it in. Plug it in, put it to sleep. And for some reason, that sleep state just messed with the battery because I think by the time I had, it actually shut down to go to sleep and by the time I had plugged it in, which would have normally reactivated the, oh, hey, I'm connecting portion, mm -hmm. probably messed around with the power state a little bit or the battery state. Okay. And then I had to do what you had to go through because I was like, man, I've had this thing for like three months. <laughs> I don't want to send it back. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, except for more than three months. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Having had dealt with that, especially when the Steam Deck was so new, it's like that heart sinking feeling. You're like, oh mm -hmm. my God. Yep. And of course, Nate's first thing would be, it's because it's Arch. Yeah, that, that was my first thought was, ah, oh, you know, Arch is probably kicking my butt again. There we go. <laughs> and honestly, <laughs> it's probably not Arch. SteamOS, Nate, for all of Arch's issues you take, at least is tailored specifically to the machine. It's kind of like that old adage of Gen 2, where it's like, oh, you can only, you know, get the best raw performance out of your entire machine, et cetera, et cetera, and all the other ancillary stuff that people always talked about with that performance. 
They kind of did that with Arch just for the Steam Deck. Yeah, maybe, except it's Arch. And so I'm not really sure <laughs> if that's the case. But then again, you also have the a most unhealthy obsession with open systems. Almost, almost unhealthy obsession. Hey, Wendy, do you have that clip of like back and when where he admitted that he has like an unhealthy obsession? Didn't you hear me tell you last week that I don't throw anything away? Of course I've got that. Exactly. <laughs> You might want to play that just to remind the audience. <laughs> I've done it to you. It's only fair if I do it to Nate, too. <laughs> You're welcome, Nate. Uh, I don't think thank you is an order. <laughs> Hi there. Magneto here. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by Linode. Visit linode.com tux and see why over a million developers trust Linode for their infrastructure needs. Are you wanting to build your own website? Of course you are. Most entry-level hosting services are fine, for a while, but if you want to be in control, do what you want, and actually own your website, Linode is where you step up to powerful, totally customizable cloud hosting. So whether you're into gaming, stuck on a proprietary website builder, or just need something to put on the cloud and access it anywhere, Linode is there for you. Every plan comes with Linode's amazing human-powered customer support. If you need help, someone will be there to pick up the phone, respond to your email, or reply to you on social media 24-7-365. Visit linode.com slash tux to create a free account. Plus, you'll get 60-day, $100 credit to your account. Thanks for listening. As we were discussing before we started recording the show about when is it time to toss out old hardware, I brought up some thoughts around some of the changes happening to kernel where they're going to be deprecating some like file systems and also support for certain bits of hardware. So it got me to thinking, when is it just time to say goodbye to old hardware or whatever? I am very, very slow to get rid of hardware. Although I will say if it's x86 based, I'm not quite as clingy toward it. It's when it's something that's... um you know, more unique, then I'll hang on to it like a Commodore or Atari or anything like that. I'll keep that indefinitely. But things like an old Pentium 3 or Pentium 2, you know, I've gotten rid of some of those, believe it or not, Matt. And I've kept Pentium 4s and onward at this point. And now I'm seeing that, you know, in the Linux kernel, some of the things that are, are slated to be dropped, like dropping some old code that's not being maintained anymore is the PCM CIA drivers. Not all of them, but some of them. And not like the compact flash drivers, those are still actively being maintained, but some of just the old, like not being used anymore. And I don't have like an exact list of everything that's being dropped, just any of those that are not being utilized anymore by anybody. But it makes me think, you know, people like myself who do keep old hardware around and keep it running as long as possible, or those like Jill, you know, from Destination Linux, when is it time to basically say goodbye to that old hardware? You know, what do you do with this old hardware once you can't put a modern Linux on it? View it as an appliance. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I've always enjoyed seeing these debates about how it likes breathes new life into old hardware, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, and I'll say x86 specifically, not some of the more esoteric cases like ARM and kind of that end of the spectrum, because ARM and Linux is still kind of relatively in its infancy as far as um, where in comparison to x86. For mainstream tech, it's like we're 15 years, 18 years since like 64-bit became a thing. How long do you keep 32-bit? I'm talking architecture support, not anything else. And yes, there are ways to extend the limitations of 32-bit, but at some point you have to move past it. Finding that balance is really hard when most of the tech that comes out is of one kind of feature or function or you know architecture. 
it makes you question and be like, okay, maybe it's time to actually look at dropping support for it. So when I see a lot of Linux distributions dropping the 32-bit stuff, I can kind of see where they're coming from. I know there are distros that are out there that still support 32-bit, but I would be in the camp of it might be time to drop it. It's kind of like when Ubuntu tried to drop the 32-bit libraries, which is a totally different subject as far as why. But when a major company that is backing your platform uses 32-bit libraries, probably not the best decision. Well, I think there's a bit of a difference there. A lot of older software games, whenever still require those 32-bit libraries. So pulling the rug out from under the ability to utilize that old software, I think that that's the problem. That's what I mean. Yeah. Business-wise, that's just a bad decision. Right. And not that I'm saying that they can just pull those, just yank them. They could. I guess that the thing is, if they remove them, they have to have some way to be able to still utilize some of those old applications or games or whatever. It's mostly games, really, to keep that stuff around. Mm -hmm. The question becomes, at what point is it just not worth maintaining? And then there are some other questions that would go along with that. You know, maybe some of the tooling needs to be improved in order to allow to be able to hang on to those things or to be able to keep those older libraries going so you can utilize the software. And maybe sometimes the question comes to, then, you know, one of these old games not worth keeping, but I think that there's no such thing. That's a silly argument. It's like, when is an old painting not worth <laughs> keeping? And I would say, well, never. I mean, you don't throw out old paintings. You don't throw out old games. Exactly. What I'm saying is when you look at it from that perspective, it's like you have to make the case and the reason to keep something. Right. A lot of the older tech there's a business reason, even if you're looking at it from like with the game situation or the software situation, where they're like, nope, Valve needs 32-bit stuff, like 32-bit right. application support, because that's just what you know Steam uses. They're one of the biggest platform contributors. Mm -hmm. Biggest OS is like, eh, nah, we're good. Like that's kind of a bad business decision where it's like probably not the best idea. Look at something logically like, again, the 32 versus 64 is just something that's easily digestible for a lot of people. You look at the 32 versus 64 bit architecture support. Everything we have now is x64. Right. Everything in the last almost 20 years. Well, how much longer are you going to support the old stuff? You know, it's kind of like when the Linux kernel dropped like Spark and a lot of the other stuff. It's because it's like eventually what they're going to do is they're going to take the appliance approach to this piece of you know server or whatever that can work but there's going to be consequences to that and as far as security and everything else so do you really worry about keeping stuff for those very 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 few edge cases or do you not from like just a maintenance perspective i think it largely depends on focus more than anything else so i don't think for the most part i'm not saying absolute here because actually i'm a little bit behind the uh, what Cubicle Nate is doing is uh, he's actually playing with a bunch of 32-bit stuff right now. So, But that aside, you know, let's ignore that. That's for next week. I'll talk about that. A 32-bit system, believe it or not, still has a lot of functionality, a lot of things it can do. Now, it can't do multimedia stuff very well. So you're not going to be able to watch, you know, your favorite streaming movies at 4K or even 1080p or, or even 720 in, in some cases. But there's other things you can do with it. So not every computer needs to be a massively powered 64-bit machine that can crank tons of mathematical operations per second because there are some cases, and again, back to the appliance thing, where a 32-bit machine that's doing a specific task is better suited because it has some of the more legacy ports and the more like direct IO stuff, you know, that's a little more like to the metal, mm -hmm. you know, doing specific functions, let's say like an industrial usage or you know, something along those lines, where actually these old 32-bit machines can still be useful for that and in many ways are, you know, 
everything from routers to managing machines, let's say, you know, like, like manufacturing machines and so forth. So these things are still very valuable in, in that case. And so, yeah, they're more like appliances at that point. They are performing a singular function, sometimes or often headless. They don't even have to have a monitor because, you know, they can just report to like web service running on them. But if they're doing that, then they do need to have some of those security hardened newer kernels and newer stacks of things to have fewer vulnerabilities or have them off the network, which can actually add some different complications to how you set up your shop or whatever. I think that there is probably not a whole lot of reason to have, let's say, maybe plasma running on a 32-bit machine. Maybe. I mean, I think I'm going to be playing with that, but not necessarily (laughs) having the highest end or you don't have to have Chrome or Firefox or Vivaldi running on this 32-bit machine. You would like to have maybe a simple web server. You'd like to have very simple cron jobs and things like that. Very Spartan, very utility type functions be able to operate on them processing on them so that they can safely do their functions and so forth. I think there's room for keeping these 32-bit machines supported, but, you know, supported asterisk, not supported for everything, but supported for doing tasks that make sense for what the hardware is capable of. That really makes sense to me. If there wasn't room for these type of devices, then there wouldn't be such a grab for the Raspberry Pi boards and all of those other single board computers that are out there. Are they the most powerful things? No, but we can do some amazing things with them. And I think you can take that same idea, exactly what you were talking about, and these old systems can be used for very specific things. You're not going to be doing your photo editing on them. Not that photo editing at the time was probably all that fantastic on them in the first place, but you can still get work and use out of these devices in that type of manner. So it makes sense to pull some certain things out of the kernel, say, for these older boards, but still have a way to have them useful in other ways that the hardware isn't going to die, isn't going to freeze up because it just doesn't have the capabilities to do it. Right, exactly. And I have like some Raspberry Pis that are fairly new, but actually have failed. And I don't know what's wrong with them, but they are no longer functional. But I have these 32-bit machines. I was thinking actually just now as we're talking about this for a different issue or a different uh, project. I noodle these things around and I was going to use a Raspberry Pi Zero, uh, Zero W, but it doesn't uh, boot anymore. And I thought, well, I can try and diagnose what's wrong with it, maybe replace some components on there. Or I can grab one of those 32-bit machines that I have sitting around that are perfectly functional, throw some sort of a solid-state storage device in there. And then just use that. It'll actually do the job just as well. It'll probably use more power. It's not going to be significant enough that it's going to matter for me. It's still going to be a headless operation. And I could absolutely use that instead. These older bits of hardware, late 32-bit machines from the 2000s, now obviously not all manufacturers made great hardware, but Dell, for instance, the machines I have are Dell's. They're actually great machines. They're very robust. I have one right now that's actually, it it is the router for my house and, and does the job very well. It's not stressed at all. So why not keep that hardware running and going for as long as possible? But that really does boil down to the question, how long is possible? That's a good question. I have no idea. So therein lies the entire conundrum of everything as far as as it relates to how long do you support something? I think a lot of it becomes majority use case. I'm not saying that you should axe everything, that like every edge case and every edge of network kind of situation. And again, I'm using the 3264 thing is kind of like a starting and stopping point. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. It's the debate we always hear about. Really, it does boil down to what's the definition of how long? 
because that's true i know microsoft's not a you know a big welcoming topic in the links community like they stopped <laughs> even doing 32 bit at some point from the consumer end of things and i'll put it this way microsoft supported 32 bit forever and then they finally are like okay now we're done so at some point you kind of have to if you're looking at it from as a consumer product you have to look at the rest of the market apple's kind of done the same thing with 32 bit everything's got to be 64 bit and i know this because i've been stung in the but by their, this requires 64-bit application stuff only, which is mad annoying when you play Steam games on Apple. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point, like arbitrarily doing the Apple route, which is like, nah, we're good. <laughs> and just throwing stuff out is not the way to go about it. But kind of sometimes doing the Microsoft approach. And if you just look at the software end of the things where you have the backwards compatibility stuff, kind of, and like that digital cruft that comes with it <laughs> because like even if you look at like windows from a ui perspective there's like six different layers of ui that you'll find in windows as you get deeper down into the system it's annoying but you have all that cruft and code that you carry over with you at some point you kind of be like eh, maybe it's time to look at how we can maybe get rid of some stuff that makes sense it's really kind of an objective way to look at it and sometimes it's not always going to be popular with those that speak the loudest yeah and i guess the other thing too is if let's say this is where i put my money where my mouth is let's say i'm using 32-bit software and on 32-bit hardware and a project says well we need help maintaining this because we just don't have the resources for the personnel to do it the, the biggest issue is the people to be able to do it more than it's the build resources because the build resources are not as critical in this case. So then, you know, people have to step up and be a part of the solution then rather than just complain, hey, I want to keep my, you know, circa 2008 netbook, if they even existed at the time, running still, but I'm not willing to do the work to help maintain it. Then I think that's where that becomes a problem. But I think if people are willing to put in the work and actually even the kernel folks, they put out the calls there saying, hey, does anybody actually still need this? I need a maintainer for this for floppies. And actually, I think someone did end up stepping up and I've actually been maintaining backward floppy compatibility and, and has actually just received some updates, make it more efficient and faster. I don't know how much faster you can go, but I think that it becomes incumbent upon the users then in the open source world to either help fund a developer to tip a developer to be able to do those things or be someone that can do that work, learn the tasks, learn the tooling and maintain it for your distribution or whatever else it, it takes. That's, I think, where it starts to, the tipping point is when nobody's willing to do it anymore because nobody's using it, then it can go. But if there are people willing to do it, maybe there's still room for it to stick around because there's that effort being put behind it. It's definitely a give and take. You can't keep everything running forever. There's just not enough resources. And so there has to be enough backing behind that thing in order to keep it going for however long people are willing to fund it, work on it, or whatnot. I guess that pretty much answers Matt's question. You keep it around for as long as people actually want to use it and are willing to help in some way make sure it's usable. Yeah, I think so. I'm sure Matt disagrees. He's probably still shaking his head and grinding his teeth <laughs> saying, I don't care. Get rid of this old 32-bit cruft. Get it out of my kernel. Not my kernel. <laughs> Actually, to be fairly honest. Being fairly honest. Again, I'm just using the 32-bit stuff as an example of what I mean because it's a debate that <laughs> currently... Rages. It's the debate in the community that currently goes on and it's a valid 
question of like, when do you let go and when do you keep it and all, all that kind of stuff. It's just the conversation around it always becomes so impassioned about it and whatnot. I don't think it has to be an impassioned conversation. I think just you can look at it very utilitarian saying, hey, I really need this. What can I do to help with this? I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. And then you can say, can you teach me how to do this so I can help with that? And I can guarantee there will be people out there that will help you learn it or do what it takes to be able to help along with that. The Linux community, the open source community has always been that way. For the most part, obviously not everybody. My experience has been a very empowering community that helps people to do, learn, and be a part of, not one that tries to keep you in the dark and so forth. Yeah, no, positive, Bill. The Linux community, the open source community, is not made up of a bunch of mats. They're actually made up of a bunch of Wendy's. Think about it like that. No, let's be real. <laughs> we'll be even nicer. They're made up of a whole bunch of gels. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Yeah, for sure. Hello, Magneto here. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we, well, that they use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password, as well as additional authentication such as master password and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your password safe. From me, Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. $10 premium account includes one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, or Duo, Vault Health Reports, and TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, and Priority Customer Support. Make the smart move, like many from the community have, and go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. If you're like my wife, Sinister Wendy, You'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially since the Premium Edition only starts at $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for supporting this episode of Lennox Out Loud. Magneto out. Well, Matt, you may not have had much to say when we started off the show, but of course, you're going to enable us with some other game of the week. Try and crack open the uh, wallet and pry out some more of our hard-earned cash. Well, actually... Part of that is wrong, mate. Which part? The crack open the wall because the game costs absolutely zero dollars to actually play. In. Ooh. Why not? The game is called Blockstorm. It is a game that for a while was a paid for application or game, whatever you want to call them, on Steam. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's a cross-platform play for multiplayer FPS, but it's basically an FPS for Minecraft is the best way I can explain it. So yeah. it's a very, very interesting game to see. They have level editors. They have just a whole bunch of stuff where you can kind of create <laughs> and do your own stuff, which is what I really love about this game. Recently, they made it a free game to own. So you totally just go on Steam, click, I think it's add to library or play for free or however they label it currently. So it's definitely a fun game, family-friendly game too. And you can have a great time if you've always been looking kind of that first-person shooter, but with um, more of a family vibe and not Splatoon on the uh, Nintendo platforms. This is about as close as you're going to get, I think, on PC. Yeah, it's kind of like Minecraft meets Call of Duty, maybe. I don't know, something like that. Uh-huh. It's got like that family-friendly vibe to it, though. Right. And it's very amusing. Like The one thing that's kind of annoying about Minecraft is that when 
you take the bottom out of something, gravity doesn't have an effect on unless it's sand or whatever doesn't fall. But here right. they're actually blowing things up and things are collapsing and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I saw some Star Wars looking stormtroopers. I don't know if it's actually supposed to be that or not. Looks like it's a fun game to play. Oh, it's been around a while. It's not just collapsing. I don't know if you've ever watched Pixels, but when they were shooting different things in the movie pixels the way these pixelated blocks would fall down that's kind of what it looks like here it's shattering into other smaller blocks which is a really cool animation i like it this is something i could see my kids absolutely loving so for those that say i never make recommendations that are family friendly <laughs> i know you do you really do but they just are few and far between except for the ones that we get behind the scenes all of you out there, you have no idea how many game recommendations come in off the show from Matt. And Matt will pick and choose. Sometimes I'm getting a bunch of them and sometimes Nate is getting a bunch of them. But there's always game recommendations that we're getting from Matt off the show. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I only make the recommendations for here. It's like Matt's thinking about us when we're not doing the show. Yes! Oh, how sweet. It is, yeah. Matt's such a nice guy. It's like a Care Bear. <laughs> for those that want a secondary game recommendation, it's kind of like the one I recommended for Nate. For the Amiga, for yes. the Final Fight, which is a 2D <laughs> kind of side scroll and beat em up. Looks really cool. I can do family-friendly games. I know, it's weird. <laughs> Very rarely. So while I'm making game recommendations about using blocks to build worlds and everything else, Wendy, you're building code. Yes, we are diving into code building and we are recording this on a Thursday and we're now meeting twice a week. So we met yesterday. The kids have all of their functions written and we were working on the code and their robot has its wheels on the back. So it would be a rear wheel drive kind of robot and there's so much weight out in front when we were using Lego Python, we had the gyro, the gyro in it, helping us with our turns. And there is some drag just from the way that forklift sits. And we were really noticing some inconsistencies in our turns using Pybricks. So they had gotten two missions written. We were getting ready to start writing a third mission. And I had to just stop everything because while I'd say 90, 95% of the time we were nailing that first mission, we were only getting that second mission nailed 25% of the time. And that is no way to take a robot to worlds, right? We want to write our code in a way that it was consistent. And so missing that gyro function was really a problem. So we had some serious talk with the team. Do we talk to Pybrix and see if there's some way that we can get this functionality back? We know that some of the issue is flaws in the build of this robot. The kids did flip their motors so that those wheels are a little closer to the center, but there's just still so much weight out front and we're not building a robot from ground zero at this point. We do not have time from that. From today, we have four weeks and three days before we fly out. We are not building a robot from ground zero and totally recoding it. So that's not an option. So do we talk to Pybrix and say, hey, you know, this is what we've got going on. Do you have any suggestions? Or do we just go back to Lego Python? Because we still have all of their functions. They've used it before. We know we can make it work. But there's really a lot of stuff that we're losing if we go 
back to Lego Python. And the kids decided that they wanted to contact Pybrix first because they didn't want to go back to Lego Python. And when I got home, they have, of course, GitHub. They've got some help there. And I wrote a post talking about, hey, this is what we've got going on. Do you have any suggestions? And I brought the team's robot home. So if there were suggestions, my kids and I could try it out before taking it to the team, making sure that it would work here before taking it to the team. And if I would have realized that these were issues, we could have worked out some of that before. But on our little teeny light robot at home that was front wheel drive, none of that was a problem. The turns were super consistent. Driving forward was really consistent. No issues there. So it wasn't something that I thought about on the larger robot until we actually got it moving. They did have some super awesome suggestions for us in which right now we're running versions of the firmware that do have the gyro enabled for turns. So it's not a full 3D gyro code base that you can use at this point. They do want that. It is coming later. And this one isn't in the main line at the time. I played with that. It was working. I was so excited. Sent the team a video. I did not go to co-op today. Got a couple kids that were sick. So I stayed home with everybody monitoring them and didn't go in. But I did send them a video, a copy of the code that we played with all of that to say, hey, yes, it works. We can keep Prybrix. This is super cool. And then after that, there was another update with being able to have that directly as part of the drive base. So initially in the original version of it, you tell the drive base, which one is your left motor? Which one is your right motor? What is your wheel diameter? What is that axle track? How far apart are they? And that's it. In this later version, you actually tell it positive direction of those motors. Right now it all has to be counterclockwise because there's some other stuff going on. I do have links to the GitHub threads in the show description. And then the last thing you add on to that is use gyro true. So part of your drive straight, part of your turn is automatically using that gyroscope to hold a zero track if you're going straight or to have it properly turn based on what that gyro sensor is reading. Absolutely awesome. I cannot praise this team enough. I know I've done it before. I know I sound like a total fangirl, but they are absolutely amazing with the stuff that they came back on. And the additional bonus of posting this to the GitHub page is obviously we're not the only FLL team that is using Pybrix. And I had some awesome feedback from another coach, some of the things that they're doing and how they have made it work in the past and this year without having the gyro. Of course, there's things that we can't change on the robot. It's too late in the season that way. But other things that we can keep in mind for next year. Absolutely love this community and all of the feedback we got. So Pybrix is 100% going to Worlds with us. And this community is awesome. Well, that's very cool that you're not the only team there that's using Pybrix. I don't know if you interact with the teams much, like if there's like a offline chat, or I, I don't know how it works, but it'd be interesting to see if there is other things you can learn from that team directly just by like chatting about it and whatnot. And also I was reading through GitHub and it's very cool how responsive they were and the fact that they're going to improve the dark mode for you as well. You didn't mention that, but I thought that was, that was cool. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but that is one of the things that came up. I love how colorful things are on the VS Codium side when we were using that. And there are parts of the code 
code on both the light and dark mode that's a little bit more colorful, but our functions, a lot of it is pretty the standard gray. And for readability, it's really nice to have multiple colors. So we did do some talking on that. Maybe what are some of the ways that we can get some more colors in there? What's possible, what's not possible? This is an application based on a Chrome browser. So there is some give and take there. The advantages of it works on every single platform. They don't have to worry about packages that need to be installed on all the different ways that you can get applications or all the different operating systems. It makes it so they can really focus on making sure that there's good documentation and that they're putting most of their work actually into the firmware for these different hubs and they actually support a variety of them. Pretty awesome. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes on the dark theming, the different colors in there. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'm interested in seeing how this developed. They said they're still working out some issues there and it wouldn't be ready in time for your competition in Texas. But if you got a workaround, I guess it'd be fine, right? Yeah, and I know from the conversation I've seen on here, they were really wanting to drop a complete gyro before releasing it. And that's something that they're hoping for late this summer, early fall. But... They do have a lot of the heading stuff turning on that Y-axis already figured out. Is it perfect at this point? No, but they do have a lot of that cleaned up. And so we are going to be testing it. It is something that I'm going to be giving feedback about. I do have that version of the firmware on the kids robot. Tomorrow, we'll be right back to coding and I'll be able to take some video, take some notes on the different stuff that we're using it for and how it's working. I know just playing with it at home, it seems like it's at a point for the team. It's very, very viable that it'll do everything we need it to do with their current robot build. You can go in and change some of the default settings for speed, but, and this is probably another thing that I need to bring up. When I set some default speeds, it was actually messing with some of my functions below. So I haven't played with default speeds again. I should just to see where that goes. So if I'm using the drive base version of the gyro for just driving straight, that's awesome. When it comes to doing the turns, they were just a little bit too fast for our robot. And that is because there's so much weight on the front end. We have physics saying we're supposed to be stopping but you know we've got a little bit still going so it's a little over on some of those turns and we do have a function written that we played with today that slows those down quite a bit helping it be just a little bit more accurate and that's still the fantastic way about this you can use it from the drive base you can use that heading function in order to write different functions, all kinds of possibilities. And I can't wait to see where it goes from here with what I'm seeing on it and what I think it can do for the team. They're probably pretty, pretty close to having that one be able to go out to everyone. And if you have a hub and you would like to play with it, that firmware is available in the thread on the GitHub page, though open about the fact that it is not implemented yet in the main firmware, it is something that is still classified as 
beta at this point. And so use at your own risk. It's not something that is officially out there yet. But if you do decide to play with it, please make sure that you are sharing your feedback with them on how it's working and the different things you're noticing because they are very responsive and it helps them in what they're working with on that firmware side of things. Yeah, I mean, it says use at your own risk, yep. but it's not like it's going to like explode and light on fire. So it's not like it's going to be the end of the world if it doesn't work 100% right. Maybe not be great for competition, but it might be fine for um, any other usages. At this point, without it, based on our robot build, we were headed back to Lego Python. We were already not going to be able to stick with Pybricks just because we couldn't do a full robot build. And with the rear wheel drive and all of the weight up front, it just wasn't working for us with consistency. There's no point in taking a robot to Worlds that you know you can't consistently score a certain amount of points and it wasn't there. So now at least with this, even though it is beta form, at this point, I can say that I feel very, very comfortable taking it to Worlds and we'll see how things go after tomorrow because we have so much more code that needs to be written. The code that they already have written gets to be tweaked just a little bit, make sure everything's lining up properly. But I feel great about it, even though they say it's beta. I guess uh, <laughs> see how it goes and if uh, it all comes unraveling apart, then uh, it's a good bug report. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It's one of those things that we know what we're getting into. The team knows what it's getting to. The fact that it is beta, the fact that it isn't officially launched firmware at this point. And we've already talked about the fact, okay, if this doesn't work out, and it was already at the point that we were with possibly going back to Lego Python, needing to do some virtual meetings where a bunch of code was getting written or rewritten, being able to rewrite some of their functions, the new ones that hadn't got put in Lego Python yet. So we'll see if it comes down to that, it comes down to that. I hope it doesn't. And I will know for sure after tomorrow kind of what that consistency rate looks like and exactly what's happening. But I'm not the only one playing with hardware and software you've got some more for the commodore 64 well i wouldn't say i've played with it yet but this is something i just stumbled on you know when you go down those rabbit holes of nonsense this is what this is it's super cool it's called a rad expansion for the commodore 64 again it's old hardware right no time to get rid of it but what it does is it uses a raspberry pi 3 3b or 3b plus or pi zero w2 3ba as well or 3a as well 3a plus what it does is it gives the commodore computer uh added functionality in, in this case it's just expanding the memory in it and then there's some allowances for doing like cpu acceleration some other things with the raspberry pi now interestingly in order for the pi to keep up with the commodore like with the timings and everything it has to be accelerated the zero w has to be accelerated a lot more like kind of to its limit, but the three not accelerated quite as fast to be able to keep up with it. Keep up's not the right word, but it has to do with like the timings because the Commodore 64 is very sensitive about timing. So there's some other related projects too. Now this one's really cool by the same guy. And I don't know if like these projects are going to be merged together. He actually had a, like a bunch of other functions that he's kind of rolled into another project, except for the RAM expansion piece of it. And or the REU RAM expansion, not the Neo RAM, two different ways of expanding the RAM. One's faster than the other. Anyway, so he has done some of things like MIDI and multiple, like adding more voices, like more sound. The SID chip has three voices on it. The polyphony is only three voices. There's a way to make it six voices with actual hardware. But this would give it something, I think, like 24 voices. 
And so like a lot of really cool things you can do that people are doing with it using new technology and combining it with old technology. And, and I just thought it was really cool. And so I had to blather about that a little bit. And I'm thinking this might be something I, I buy and play with. It's an open source project. So it, you, know, you have to build it yourself, which I'm fine with. But it's a really neat way of adding functionality with the power of open source and the power of you know open source hardware on, on a very, very old computer. And I just thought it was cool. Not much more to say than that, other than it just kind of got me all excited, I guess. I can definitely see why. It's one of those ways that you can keep old hardware going with new hardware, newer hardware. Raspberry Pi 3s aren't the newest thing out there, but taking old hardware plus newer hardware and getting more work out of it. And my understanding too is there are ways of bypassing some of the internal components. So like, let's say you have a Commodore 64 that's got like a bad, I don't know that this to be true, but if it has like a bad VIC chip, the graphics processing unit of the Commodore 64, for lack of a better mm. term, a bad a CPU or sound chip, the SID chip, there may be a way, again, I, I don't know if I'm reading this correctly, but in my mind, it seems to work it out as such because the expansion port can essentially replace a lot of the internal components with a powerful enough Pi you could emulate everything and bypass some of the old failing equipment with the Raspberry Pi, but then be, still be able to utilize as long as some of the other components are still working, but still utilize or the rest of the computer, essentially. So there is a VIC bypass in the other project, the graphics processing chip, and there's a sound bypass as well. So I don't know if the CPU can be replaced, but I know there are bypasses for the CPU as well. So I don't know. Maybe it's possible, but it's, it's an interesting idea to essentially keep an old thing still useful with new technology and integrating them together as such. Awesome. Well, now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit that discourse form, drop us a line under this video or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description, find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more at tuxdigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcast and shows by visiting Tux Digital Merch Store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I paused my game to be here shirt or join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome sode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter-friendly conversation somewhat on topic and have fun doing it. Mm-hmm.